I love to hear these faith stories, don't you? And not only do we get to know one another better, but we praise God for the way he, in grace, brings us to himself, opens our eyes that we might see, and uh, each one of us who knows Christ has some kind of great story to tell about his amazing grace. We've all seen it before, the high drama of jurisprudence. You're waiting in the courtroom for the judge to enter, and then the marshal's booming voice echoes through the chambers, all rise, and we all stand. Why do we do that? Out of respect for the law, and out of respect for the position of the judge who has authority to enact the law. There not, may not be respect for the character of the judge, but there is respect for the law itself, and so we rise. The judge comes in, white, uh, clothed, robed with this uh, important uh, demonstration of his authority, and sits down, and once he does, you often hear this voice, the court is now in session, and the gavel comes down. That word session is a fascinating word. It's actually an archaic English word that means to sit. <laughs> and it was used just commonly to sit until it started being used more in the context of to sit with authority, as a teacher would sit and teach the students or as a judge would be seated and now ready with authority to enact the law. What is interesting is that there is a theological co connection, a theological connection with that scene in the courtroom and the idea of the court is now in session. Theologians talk about the session, the heavenly session of Jesus Christ. And what that simply means is that Jesus has ascended. He has been seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. And now Christ is in session. He is ruling. He has jurisdiction over the whole universe. And he rules and reigns in grace and power. Ephesians 1, says... Everything has been placed under his feet. Corinthians says we don't see everything under his feet, but we will when Christ comes again. Even the Apostles' Creed recognizes the session, or the, the session of Christ, or sometimes just called the heavenly session, when it says that Jesus ascended, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Warren Worsby made a very interesting observation that the Old Testament tabernacle had no chairs because the priestly work was never done. But in heaven, Jesus is seated because his atoning work is done, but his ruling work has just begun and will continue to begin throughout all eternity. 
We, we read in the book of Hebrews this great focus on the enthroned Christ, the high priest who is seated at the right hand of God. We read, for instance, in the very first chapter of the book of Hebrews, verse 3, after Jesus provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Stated again in chapter 10, verse 12, but when this priest, Jesus, who had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, when he sat down, it was at the right hand of the throne of God. And then in those very familiar words of chapter 12, verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But there's another place in Hebrews where the session of Christ is discussed, and it's in our text, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Please turn with me to the book of Hebrews 8.1. Now, the point, or the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, or some translations have it, on high. What a beautiful statement about the enthroned Christ with power and authority who has finished his work of atonement and has gone in behind the curtain on our behalf with the, the sacrifice, the blood of his own sacrifice, of his own death, to appease, to satisfy the justice of God and reconcile us to the Lord. All of that is found in this wonderful verse. So remember, when you bow to pray, the book of Hebrews tells us you're coming to the throne of grace. Each one of us come broken by our sins, embarrassed by our weaknesses, sometimes crushed by our daily burdens, but we come to the throne of grace where the seated Christ reigns and we ask for mercy, for grace to help in our time of need and Christ is the one who gives it to us. That beautific vision, that beautiful vision is what we long to see in our daily devotions. Christ high, exalted, and lifted up. This is the main point. By the way, uh, verse 1 is kind of a, a review, recapping what has already been discussed. And the main point is that Jesus Christ is better than everything, that he is superior. Or to put it another way, everything in this world is inferior to Jesus. And that's what the readers of this epistle didn't quite capture. Oh, they had come to Christ, and they had suffered for Christ, and they had served Christ. But now they were thinking of turning back to Judaism. Most of these are Jews. Many of them perhaps were even Pharisees. Some perhaps former priests, as we read about in the book of Acts. Many priests came to faith. But now they were thinking of going back because they could look down the road in the city of Jerusalem 
or almost from anywhere in that area and see the temple and they could see the priesthood actually serving. But Jesus is seated in heaven. He's superior, they say, but they're beginning to doubt it. And so the writer of Hebrews wants to make the argument even stronger. So he adds to what he, was al- he has already said about a superior Christ by mentioning the fact that he serves in a superior place, or he serves in a better place. Picking up the narrative in verse 2. This high priest serves in the sanctuary. By the way, the word serves is the same word where we get the English word liturgy, and it has to do with worship or sacrifice. He serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle. Sanctuary and tabernacle being the same thing. Literally, the word is tent. He serves in the true tent. Now, this is imagery taken from the Old Testament. Remember, Moses received the pattern from on high of a tabernacle to build where God would dwell. The heavens of heavens cannot contain him, but in presence, he will be in this tabernacle, and the Shekinah glory cloud will come down, and fire will represent his presence. And there was a priesthood established around the tabernacle or the tent. It was made with animal skins and woven fabric, but it was a holy place. And even the tabernacle had the holy place and then the very special holy of holies. Now Jesus is said to be in heaven serving in the true tabernacle pitched by the Lord or set up by God himself, not by man, not by human hands. Verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one, referring to Jesus, also to have something to offer. Now, one of the things we might miss as we read over that in the English is the fact that the word offer is mentioned twice. The first time, it is in the continuous tense, the present tense. So that the priests, every high priest who works in the earthly tabernacle, is constantly offering gifts and sacrifices. So this priest in heaven also has to offer a sacrifice as well. But now the tense has been changed. It is a once-for-all offering, which is just what we read in chapter 7 and is going to be mentioned again in chapter 9. And it becomes one of the main points of the book is that when Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, it was an offering once for all, sufficient to satisfy the holiness of God and sufficient to cover all of your sin and mine. Once for all. And he sacrificed, not an animal, but himself. And he took that offering behind the curtain to a holy God. What a great offering. If he were here on earth, verse 4, he would not be a priest because he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. And there are already men offering gifts prescribed by the law. But Jesus is serving in the true tabernacle, verse 5. They're serving in a copy and shadow of what is actually in heaven 
Now, this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. And this is a quotation from Exodus 25. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Now, get this. The word copy, shadow, pattern. That's what the earthly is compared to the real in heaven. Jesus is serving in a better place in the true tabernacle. I remember years ago, I had to do something rather official, and they said, give us your birth certificate, and I couldn't find it. Back in the early 50s, it wasn't such a big deal. Printed on a useless piece of paper, signed quickly by a doctor. You can't read his name. The date was printed there on some old typewriter. And there might have been a bit of a seal, but I only had copies, and so I presented the copy, and that wasn't good enough. They believed I was alive, but they didn't believe necessarily that this was the actual date of my birth. So I had to go on a, on a hunt, a journey to find the original. We didn't have it. Had to go to the hospital, see if they had one. And then they gave us a second original, which is an oxymoron. <laughs> but they, they gave us an official picture of the original. But it was different from the copy. The copy is not as good as the real thing. Or how about a shadow? Suppose you're out in the woods cutting down a tree, and the tree falls on you. You're in trouble. You're in big trouble, right? But what if the shadow of the tree falls on you? Well, that means you're close, but you're fine. Because the shadow has no power. It represents the tree, but it is not the tree. And then the word pattern comes from the Greek word tupas, which means type. So God showed to Moses a pattern of the reality, and he was to make everything after the real. But it's, it's just a type. It's not the real thing. In other words, what is on earth is inferior to what is in heaven. That's the point that is being made. And the priests on earth are working in the shadow and the copy, but not the real thing. There are so many things in the old legislation of the law of Moses that were shadows and types and copies, but not the real thing. For instance, the Sabbath day. Why, we just read in Hebrews chapter 4 that are, there are different kinds of rests, Sabbath rests. And the first was a picture. It was a picture of the better that was coming, the eternal rest in Christ. So when we take one day out of seven to rest, that's a copy. We're following the type or the actual reality of eternal rest in heaven. And so it was with the dietary laws, and so it was with the sacrifices, and so it was with the high priest, a picture like Melchizedek of one coming that would be far, far greater. And the first is temporary and not everlasting. And the first is inferior and not superior 
The second is superior. The first doesn't work forever. The second does. And it's unthinkable that Jesus would serve in a tabernacle that was inferior. So he has gone into the very presence of the majesty on high, God the Father. And he's done it for you, and he's done it for me. Now, some people ask the question, is there actual, a, an actual, real, physical temple in heaven? And, and that is uh, an interesting debate. Warren Worsby says, it doesn't mean that the heavenly tabernacle is made up of skins and fabric. The important thing is that the meaning and purpose of the old tabernacle reflects the reality, the meaning and purpose of the real tabernacle. In fact, when you read in Revelation 11, verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within that temple was seen the ark of his covenant. But then when you get to chapter 21, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, they were the temple. So some say, well, it's there for a period of time, but in the final eternal state, it won't be there. I don't know all of those answers, but I do know this, that the Old Testament is built on the picture of the real tabernacle, and that's where my high priest is in the superior place with a superior sacrifice on my behalf. And that is beautiful. So don't turn back to the old, which is inferior. Not only does he serve in a better place, but he serves based on better promises. Look at verse six. But now the ministry Jesus has received is superior or better. That word is found about 13 different times in the book of Hebrews and becomes a major theme. The ministry of Jesus now right now is superior. As superior as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established or founded on better promises. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that the law was bad. In fact, in Romans it says that the law is holy and righteous and good. But we've just read in Hebrews chapter 7, the law makes nothing perfect. So the old passes away because it is obsolete. It served its purpose. But a new covenant is coming in. Verse 7, for if there was nothing wrong with the first covenant, there would be no place sought for another covenant. This covenant is based on better promises. What are the better promises? It's based on grace, not on law-keeping. Better promises. And to argue his point, the writer of Hebrews quotes a long section from Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 8. All taken from Jeremiah 31. Now we have to get back into that time period to understand why he would bring the quote up. Actually, the, the quote is very appropriate because he's talking to Jews 
who love the old system and want to go back to it. And he's saying, that's obsolete. There's something new. Even Jeremiah said this. Back in those days, it was the closing years of the history of the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom was already in captivity. Southern kingdom had disobeyed God. And Isaiah was a prophet who said, you're going to go into captivity too. 70 years, Babylon. God will give you over to them. He'll just let you go. But even though everything seems to be lost forever, completely destroyed, here's my promise to you. And this is the wonderful promise that he goes to. Verse 8. The law was not bad, but God found fault with the people. And he said this, the time is coming. This is Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah or Jacob. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. By the way, isn't that a beautiful picture? Like a parent leading the child out of danger. It will not be like that covenant because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away and let them go, declares the Lord. But what I have for you is a new covenant. That's what verse 8 says. The time is coming for something new. So what are the better promises? The first is the promise of a new covenant. Not new in the sense of time, but new in the sense of quality, improvement, greater. It was new when Jesus established it when he was on this earth. But now the new covenant is 2,000 years old, having been uh, announced and presented and demonstrated by the life and death and resurrection of Christ. But it's new in the sense that it's better than the old. It's of a different quality. Now you say, but pastor, this promise, verse 8, is for the house of Israel, the people of Israel, and the people of Judah. Are Israel, is Israel the church the same? And the answer is no. Well, is the church and Israel somehow vitally connected? And the answer is yes. <laughs> well, how can you take this promise? How can the author of Hebrews take this promise and just apply it to the people of today when it was given to Israel? Well, number one, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But let's go back and trace this a little bit, this new covenant. When Jesus was in the upper room, And was conducting the last dinner with his disciples. We call it the last supper. And he took the elements of the Passover feast. And changed them into the new covenant symbols. He took the cup. Luke twenty two twenty, And he said this cup is the new covenant. In my blood. And there it is. Sealed with the blood of Christ. Not the blood of bulls and goats. Now, the Apostle Paul takes those same words when he's talking to the people in Corinth, 
And he says to them in chapter 11, in the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And now Paul applies it to the church. Jesus makes it sure, makes us makes it evident that his blood shed on the cross is the new covenant, and Paul applies it to the church. So it's now applied to all the believing people. But here's what happened. When Christ came, he first came to his own people. Read about it in Matthew 15. When his ministry began, he went to his own. John 11 He came to his own, or John chapter 1, verse 11. When the disciples were sent out, they were sent out only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew chapter 10. The early church was commissioned to serve, Acts 1-8, first in Jerusalem, which was primarily Jewish. Peter's sermon at Pentecost was aimed at the Jews and Gentile proselytes who came in from all the other nations. And then Peter's second sermon in Acts chapter 3 was clearly to the Jew first. And that was the message of the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 1, to the Jew first. But what did the Jews do with the message of the new covenant? He came to his own, and his own received him not. They rejected Jesus. They rejected the new covenant. We'll keep the old. Thank you very much. And they crucified Christ, and they stoned Stephen, and they persecuted the church. And then the gospel, Acts chapter 8, moves from Jerusalem to Samaria. And then in chapter 10, to the Gentiles and to the uttermost part of the earth. And the Gentiles are receiving the message. Now, there were thousands of Jews who believed it in Acts 2 and 3 and 5, but the majority of the nation rejected the Savior. And now the focus is to the nations. But God has not forgotten the Jew, and they will return. And that's part of the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 31. They will come back, and they will believe. The new covenant is holy of grace. For you read through this section, and God is saying over and over again, I will make a new covenant. I will draw these people back. And Jesus, right now, is the mediator of a new covenant. But these are also better promises because, secondly, they promise a new relationship or a new set of relationships with God and with man. Look at verse 10. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time and believing people. Yeah, you have to remember that all of God's promises are bottled up in the person of Christ. All the new wine of the new covenant is bottled up in Jesus alone. If you reject Jesus, you reject all the blessings. And you're rejecting God. But he promises a new relationship. This covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
That sounds a lot like Ezekiel chapter 36, also talking of the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. That hasn't happened yet with the Jewish nation, but it will. It will, because God's not done with Israel yet. You see, the old law was external. It was written on tablets of stone. The new covenant is written on the heart. It's internal. It's possible for God's word to be written on your heart, and well, it should be. Because once you embrace Jesus, then his law becomes dear to your soul. And you feed on it like your daily food, and it becomes part of you. Not only do we have a new relationship with God, but we have a new relationship with one another. Verse 11, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Now, that hasn't happened yet. You realize that someday we won't even have to witness? Because we'll be in a new kingdom where everyone knows the Lord? Someday, that day hasn't arrived yet. The new covenant isn't totally fulfilled. But he'll come again. And there's a better promise not only of a new covenant that now is and will totally be fulfilled in the future of new relationships which we have when we believe in Christ and which will permeate the earth one day but finally there's the promise of new status look at verse 12 for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more isn't that great it's so great God had to say it three times once in the Old Testament twice in the book of Hebrews we'll see it again in in chapter 10 their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. That's really good because you know what? I can't forget my sins. I wish I could. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and remembered a sin of years ago? Oh God, forgive me, we cry out. And he says, I already have. Or he might say, what are you talking about? (laughs) now there's a big debate as to whether God can forget anything and if he chooses to do so he can but the real meaning of this idea of not remember is that I will not hold them against you Sometimes when you're counseling with someone who's been greatly offended and violated by someone else and you encourage them to forgive because that's what the Bible says. We have to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. And you say, I can't forget, but that's different. You can forgive, even though you may never forget. But you need to treat the person who's offended you as though they never did And that's hard. You know, God knew his son Jesus never committed any sin, but when he died on the cross, all of our sin was placed upon him, and God treated his son as though he was the worst sinner in the world. God treated Jesus that way. 
And the, the forgiveness that we have in Christ is the kind of forgiveness we need to give to other people. And when you accept the forgiveness of God, now you are in a position to forgive those who have wounded you. And that's what the new covenant gives, a relationship with God where all our sins are forgiven. Wow. When this epistle was written, you could walk down the street and see the old temple and see the priesthood, as we said before. But a couple years after this epistle was written, 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And from that day to this, the Jews no longer have a temple to worship in and no priesthood. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, what you have is going to pass away. <laughs> and it did. And it's outdated Look at verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete is aging, outdated, and will soon disappear. You need something that won't disappear. And I tell you this, everything is inferior to Jesus because he will last forever. Why go back when there'll be nothing when you get back there? Why not Embrace the one who was and is and is to come. Who am I talking about? Such a high priest that is in session, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, enthroned with power as a king and seated because he's once for all made an atonement for every believer's sin. Oh, my friend, trust Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we bow our hearts and acknowledge that we are broken sinners and we cannot save ourselves. Lord, if there's someone who, here who will not acknowledge that, they cannot be saved. There's no way they can be brought to the Savior. Jesus didn't come to save those who think they're righteous those that think they're spiritually healthy. He came for the sick. So Lord, we acknowledge our sin and we cry out for a savior who can truly save. Not for the shadow of one, but for the real one. Not for a, a copy that is inferior, but for the genuine savior who saves to the uttermost. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know Christ, may they cry out right now, Lord, save me. Jesus, save me. And if you mean business, God will save you right where you sit. And then to every believer, I say it is our privilege as well as our most important goal of every day to see Jesus high and lifted up. The Lord on his throne the king of grace and glory. And remember, our sins and our lawless deeds, he will remember no more. Praise God. Amen.